Hello, Marvelites! You are listening to This Week in Marvel, episode number 453. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. H&M. And I'm Lorraine Sink in space! Ooh, I like that. A little <laughs> foreshadowing for what we have in store. It's going to be a fun episode. And if you're just joining us for the first time, we are going to talk about all kinds of stuff happening this week in Marvel, whether it's comics, movies, TV. You know what? Maybe even... Games, Lorraine. Games. All right. Marvel's Iron Man VR is out today. Like this day right now. But don't leave yet because we're going to talk about more stuff. Listen to this podcast. Then go download the game because it's very fun to play. You can play it on PlayStation VR. Okay. There is going to be more to come with our guests later in the show from the game developer Camouflage. Uh, He's also a director on Marvel's Iron Man VR. His name is Ryan Payton and he is a GD Delight. Yeah, he was a sweetheart to talk to. Um, and it's really cool. If you like if you you're not gonna play Marvel's Iron Man VR, I still think it's a really cool uh interview to hear just to mm-hmm. learn about the process and what goes on and sort of behind the scenes and just like what this game is, because it's really cool. But I do implore you to please check out Marvel's Iron Man VR. It is available exclusively for PlayStation VR. You can download it right now if you have your PSVR. Uh it's on the PlayStation Store, or you can go out. There's a bundle for uh that includes the game, the PSVR headset, and the move controllers. Every Everything you need to get started playing Marvel's Iron Man VR. And uh, we even threw in some extra suggestions. So if you pick up Marvel's Iron Man VR and you want, you're like, oh, now I have this, oh, this whole new system. What else should I play? We have some great ones that you can hear in the interview. Yeah, I'm going to get my PlayStation VR on because I just got my PlayStation 4 back. Yay! Uh, we should find a game to play multiplayer on, Lorraine. <laughs> I mean, of course, we're going to play Marvel's Avengers. Yes. Later in uh, in September, we'll be playing that. But we should find something that we can we can jam on together. I'm so excited! Yes, we're gonna do that. Ooh, also speaking of sweet jams and more game stuff, Warhammer Forty Thousand Marnius Calgar is a comic coming by Kieran Gillen and Jason Burrows in October. If you don't know Warhammer, it's a great uh, tabletop game. You usually play it with some minifigs, occasionally some rulers and things involved. Rulers being the measuring implements, not like kings, but sometimes kings. I'm excited to see what uh, they're going to do. Of course, Kieran, on all his Star Wars and X-Men books that he's written and so much more for us, he's going to crush it here. He is a Warhammer 40,000 player, which I think is part of the reason why he's writing this. And then Jason Burroughs, if you don't know his art, I, I think this is going to be a revelation. He did a really great Punisher Max uh, series recently, which is gnarly and it is real intense it's got a lot going on uh it's um violent as heck and he's gonna be perfect for this kind of like nasty book that i imagine this will be in all the best ways i know i was really excited for kieran to write it especially because i follow him on instagram and he posts a ton of tabletop gaming stuff which i'm very into um so he knows his his game so he's gonna do great on this book well he's great anyway heck yeah uh, and so uh, Disney Plus just announced their big, sweeping, uh, fun selection of movies that are coming to the service this summer. They're using the hashtag Disney Plus Movie Nights. And with that and, and the movies that they've said that are coming each week, uh, they may have live Q&As, extra content, watch parties and more. And there's a whole bunch of movies. I grabbed a selection of them that are you know obviously important for us here on the show. So July 10th, which is just next week, we're going to get X. Days of Future Past, as well as Solo, A Star Wars Story. Of course, we have the comic book adaptation of Solo, A Star Wars Story here at Marvel. Uh, And then the week after that, July 17th, X-Men Apocalypse. July 31st, this one isn't Marvel or Star Wars, but I think it's relevant. It is Incredibles 2, which is I've not seen yet, so I'm very excited. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. And it's got superheroes, little sweet baby ones. Uh, Then August 7th, we have the original X-Men, which factors into a conversation we may be having in a little while. We'll see. Mm. Uh, Then August 14th, Marvel Studios' Ant-Man and the Wasp. Uh, And the same day, we're also going to have on Disney+, Plus The Greatest Showman. And then August 28th, 28th, the 2005 Fantastic Four movie will be available. Uh, I know, Lorraine, I think you posted this on social media that the more recent Fantastic Four movie is also up. Yeah, it's there already. I, I went to go do some Marvel watching and it was just there first 
first and foremost in my little queue. There you go. And then September 4th, I think this rounds out the, the allotment of Disney Plus Movie Nights movies, is The Wolverine, which has a very special place in my heart because uh, it was filmed in Australia. I got to visit the set twice. I got to put on the claws, which is like one of my favorite memories from being at Marvel's Hugh Jackman coming over and chatting with me and uh, one of the producers who's a friend of mine and we're talking and he's got the claws and he's full Wolverine and he's like, I'm not going to do a, a bad accent. He, he says, do you want to wear the claws? And I was like, yes, please. So I have a bunch of photos of me like looking at them, figuring out what is happening. Uh, so that's a whole lot of cool Marvel stuff coming to Disney Plus uh, this summer. Yeah, but we thought we would get right into community with a little some special. First tweet in here is from that one nerd, Ron, at Raspiris8. It says, hi, Agent M and CB Sobolski. I was shocked to find something like this existed and never knew that Marvel did a thing with Star Trek. Uh, could you maybe bring this up in a This Week in Marvel podcast? And it's a picture of the uh, Star Trek X-Men crossover novelization. Now, Lorraine, you know a thing or two about a thing or two uh, when it comes to Star Trek, but I am clueless. <laughs> so I think we should do something fun. Okay, I'm aboard, Captain. Beam me up. <laughs> uh, oh, boy. Uh, I think we should bring on a couple of guests, a couple of experts to help us. Uh, so I'm going Wait, to... experts or Trexperts? Well... This Trexpert is a dear friend of mine, a friend of yours, uh, and it's his first time on the show. Let's bring in Mr. Alex Segura. Thanks for having me. Alex. Yeah, Alex. Who are you? Uh, I am a novelist and comic book writer. I am by day. I'm the co-president at Archie and I'm Ryan's former roommate. And we used to work together at Wizard. So that's my bi my bio through the filter of Ryan. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's wild because when we worked at Wizard, we both lived in the same house in the same room at different times. So Alex moved out of one of the room and I moved into that room. I left you my furniture, right? I don't think so because I'm I I had human furniture. Uh, I didn't need yours. And then years later, I was working at Marvel. You were working at DC. And then you lived with my wife and I here in uh, in New York City. I think I had somebody tweeted at me recently saying, you know, they wished we were still roommates just because they loved the idea that we were doing this kind of uh, coyote and sheepdog routine where we'd come to the apartment and not talk about our respective work secrets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, of course, you have you mentioned you're a writer, numerous comics, as well as a bunch of novels. And um, you have a new novel coming pretty soon, right? Yes. In August, uh, Star Wars, Poe Dameron, Freefall hit. If you saw The Rise of Skywalker, your big questions were probably tied to Poe and his time with the Spice Runners and Zori Bliss. And this answers all those questions and a lot more. So it was it was awesome to write and to get to play in that universe. I'm excited for people to read it. I thought you had to choose whether you liked Star Trek or Star Wars. Is that not the true Star Wars? No, you're allowed to like both, as I've discovered over the last <laughs> the last few years. But I, I grew up with both. I, rem I remember, you know, watching Empire and then watching the Star Trek reruns as a kid, kind of around the same time. I was never a Star Trek guy, and you were always Star Trek, um, like, well-versed. What is your history with Star Trek? My first memories of Star Trek were, you know, watching the original series. They, had, they ran the episodes in black and white in syndication for some reason really late at night. So I remember watching that, and um, I fell into that rabbit hole really quick, you know, reading the novels, reading stuff like the technical manual, which is just a nerdy, like, schematic <laughs> breakdown of every ship. And I remember spending a long time trying to figure out the start date model like what it meant like how stardates translated into the actual date uh and so i was really bummed as a kid when i read an interview and someone was like we just made up the number every episode like there's no rhyme or reason to stardates or warp speed or anything like that so that was heartbreaking to young alex but um yeah so a lot of a lot of time in the expanded universe of star trek and then watching next generation when it was airing and then that that kind of rolled into like a new golden era with next generation deep space nine and the less said about Enterprise, the better, but other stuff like that. So what is your favorite iteration of Star Trek? 
I love the original series. Like, I really have a soft spot for the original series movies, like Wrath of Khan and Search for Spock. But I also grew up with Next Generation, so I feel close to them. And I've come to really appreciate Deep Space Nine as I've gotten older and more jaded, which is kind of the vibe of the show. And and you see how it kind of sets the stage for stuff like Battlestar Galactica and other sci-fi, like the X-Men, just with serialized stories and really conflicted characters. I think the big critique of Next Generation is that the, the characters never argue, but I don't think that's really true. Like, we've been rewatching it, actually. It's been kind of soothing with the news and the world going crazy just to see that, that maybe that there is a better future. But... um the characters do have conflict. It's just treated in a very Star Trek way, which is interesting. Which is the one with Quantum Leap. Oh, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> he leaps into Captain Kirk's body and becomes the captain of the Enterprise. You know what? I'm on board. <laughs> Give me some of that. It's the crossover we want and need. <laughs> I associate Star Trek Next Generation with dinner time because my brother insisted that we watch it when it was on, which was always during our dinner as kids. And so I associate it with being forced to sit at a dinner table with my parents and 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 explain my day over, you know, Riker. <laughs> While Riker, like, lifts his leg and props his leg up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, my wife has the same memory. Like, when we've been watching the episodes, she's had moments where she's like, oh, I remember talking about this with her brother or her family because it was, like, dinner time routine. But uh, I don't know why I didn't watch it while having dinner. I guess we have dinner late in Miami, so... All right. Well, I want to talk us through a quick look back at Marvel's history with Star Trek. Feel free to chime in. Um, but I just want to hit some of our, you know, our storied past for our audience at home. So Marvel first really, I mean, has licensed comics for a long time or licensed stories for comics for a long time. But a lot of them happened in the 70s through the 90s, just like a ton. So obviously, you know, here on the podcast and in general, we talk a ton about Star Wars comics that have been running for forever and ever, those other guys. Um, but there's also been Godzilla for Ryan, personally. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Planet of the Apes, Logan's Run, Battlestar Galactica, Doctor Who, G.I. Joe. I mean, name it, might have been a comic. Um, but <laughs> Marvel's first Star Trek comics came after the Star Trek The Motion Picture, which was a film, if you didn't know that. It was a motion picture, <laughs> uh, which came out in 1979. And... Marvel did a three-issue adaptation of the movie, and that was by Marv Wolfman, David Cockrum, Klaus Janssen. Uh, it also had editors like Jim Shooter and Richard Marshall. And then from number four to 18 were just original comics, some of which were by a young Tom DeFalco, J.M. DeMattius. Uh, and that entire first run was somewhere between 1979 and 1982, depending on how you look at the cover dates. Versus the actual <laughs> dates in reality. I looked at it. I was like, I think this is 1980 to 81, but whatever. We'll give it a wider berth and let people figure it out. Ryan, we didn't read those in real time. We would have been like babies just ripping up paper at that point. I know. I mean, especially if it's Star Trek, I would have been ripping it up and stamping on it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. The weird thing, I think the weird thing about the Marvel run, and not to get too in the weeds, but it, they could only use stuff revealed in the motion picture. So they couldn't do stuff like stuff you saw in later, like Star Trek comics, where there were sequels to episodes or things that kind of pulled from the, the original series. So really, the only stuff they could do had to have been introduced in the movie, which is interesting. And that's just like a, a sneak peek into the nuts and bolts of licensing comics that sometimes you get contracts that are so in the weeds, you can only do so much. But I thought the stories were interesting. As a, I reread a couple before this, and it's, there's some really bonkers stuff, and then there's some really fun, like, interesting. You know, Denny O'Neill wrote some. Mike W. Barr, who is a huge Star Trek person, he's written Star Trek novels, did a few, too. So it's, there's some hidden gems in there, for sure. Did you read the pre-Marvel comics, the, the Gold Key stuff at all? I did, and those are really weird because you can tell that they had not watched the show. They were just doing, like the <laughs> script, and like like the like the phasers look nothing like not you know the phasers don't look like the phasers. The beaming is totally bizarre, and um, a lot of that early licensed Trek stuff is really strange. Like even the novels, there's one where Spock clones himself, and then they have to kill like the clone Spock called Spock Must Die. And I remember reading that, and the the early licensed novels are are not of the same quality as as we kind of take for granted today. 
But as, you know, we we move into the future of times you will remember, uh, you know, the Star Trek comics really bounced around between other publishers like DC and Malibu. Uh, Malibu eventually was bought by Marvel. And then around 1996, Paramount signed a deal with Marvel again to make more comics about Star Trek. But Marvel had the Star Trek license again for about a year and a half. I want to talk about your guys' experience growing up reading some Star Trek comics. So, you know, the the thing that when we started, when we got this question, I started thinking about this. I was like, what was the Star Trek comic that Brian Hitch drew? And then I was like doing research. I was like, I guess he didn't draw one. It was just like my memory. You you know, your memory does that weird thing where you think something is true and you believe it to be true. And I, for some reason, I guess I just thought that in my brain, I, I pictured Brian Hitch's art, but I was thinking of the 1996 the, the Star Trek X-Men book that had Mark Silvestri on art and David Finch and like a couple of the other like top cow guys. And so that was where my brain went. And that was, I remember seeing that, having a couple of those, um, but not being a big Star Trek guy. I got them just because they were X-Men. And I just, you know, as a kid, I was like, oh, that's cool. The X-Men are hanging out with space people. That's fun. I know them. Uh, but I don't have like deep memories of them. But I remember I remember buying them because I would buy anything X-Men as a kid. Yeah, same. I, it was a weird overlap of two of my obsessions because I was a big X-Men, but still a big X-Men reader. And then to see them crossing over with the Star Trek characters was bizarre, but also wonderful in a strange way. And then I think, and you probably had the same kind of mentality, We I follow creators too. And so one of my first thoughts was like, wow, Silvestri is back at Marvel to do this. Like, this is the thing that pulled him away from Cyberforce or whatever he was doing. You know, it's like maybe he was a huge Star Trek fan. And I feel like Lobdell wrote the first. The the thing that I saw was the story title for that Star Trek X-Men crossover, the first one. And I was like, did Lorraine write this title? Because it's <laughs> Star Treks and the X, it's instead of K, it's T-R-E capital X. And I was like, I gotta go. I'm leaving. Can we please talk about this 1996 Star Trek X-Men comic? Because I just read it this morning in preparation for today. And I have a lot of feelings about it. (laughs) Yeah, it's out there. It's so wild to see because it's the X-Men in their 90s glory with Star Trek being purely Star Trek. And the visual languages are so different because you have like these big, huge 90s muscle bound dudes in their blue and yellow costumes and like Jean Grey's wearing the her Modoc costume with the head frame, as I like to call it. And you see these big muscle bound superheroes and then they're next to these like very lanky 60s body types of the original Star Trek cast. And so they, the color you, scheme is pretty similar, like blue and gold and like red. But it's also funny because like, you think about superheroes when they shoot a blaster or something, they like hold their arms out in like a very dirty, hairy kind of way. And in Star Trek, everything's like literally shooting from the shooting from the hip, shooting from the turtleneck. Um, but it's like right next to them. And it's like pew, pew, little shoots. <laughs> it's fascinating. Even even with Kirk, who's like shoot first, talk later, like it's still a very cerebral show. Like it's like, let's think about this. Let's think about this some more. Like what does this mean for humanity? Whereas the X-Men are also really cerebral, but it's much more, well, let's fight first and then we'll figure out whose side we're on. So it's it's just like tonally, it's two different, really different things. But it's so, I remember having having a blast reading that. And it's so fun to see the team-ups when you see, like, Jim and Beast, like, hanging out in the medical bay. <laughs> Damn it, Jim, I'm a... Or, pardon me, not Jim. Uh, what's his name? I'm a doctor, not a doctor. What is it? McCoy, name? McCoy. McCoy, thank you. Dr. McCoy. Wait, so the the two... It's two McCoys <laughs> hanging out? Yeah. Two McCoy, McCoy doctors? McCoy doctors, yeah. Hank McCoy and... That just blew my mind. And Bones McCoy. <laughs> Yeah, it's really bizarre. I mean, I, I, rem- I just I have a vivid memory of going to the newsstand back when we would pick up Marvel and DC stuff there and uh, and picking that up and just being blown away that it was even possible that two different properties from different companies could cross over because I think we were in a pretty dry spell in terms of Marvel DC crossovers. Like there were one offs here and there, but it didn't seem like that normal yet. Um, I think there was Deathmate. So <laughs> God bless Deathmate. Someday. So that takes us to 1998's Star Trek X-Men crossover. 
a second contact. Also, uh, we have Dan Abnett in there, plus Ian Eddington, Carrie Nord, and Scott Koblish. And that one is, that's the next generation, I think? Yes, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that was Picard and, and Data and that crew hanging with the X-Men. And then that was followed by the Star Trek, the next generation, X-Men Planet X prose novel by Michael Jan Friedman. Yes, and Michael Jan Friedman has a really long comic book resume. He did Dark Stars at DC. He did the Next Generation comic for the longest time. And he's also written a billion Next Generation novels and an original series, I think. So that, that was a big, like, obsessive part for me as a fan, just reading all those novels and kind of figuring out where they fit in. Well, would you like to talk to Michael? I would like to talk to him. I've never spoken to him in real life. Well, maybe we should call him then. Let's, uh, you can do that? Do you have his number? Yeah, we have everybody's uh, phone number in the big Marvel directory book. How about this? Guys, set phases to c- call him, right? Set no. phases to call him. Hey, how are you? We're great. We're, yeah. we're even better now that we're talking to you. We we had to call you because, you know, you've had, you've written an insane amount of books in general, but I believe more than half of those have been Star Trek titles. And we want to talk about all of that, but also, um, how did you get started in into the Star Trek universe? Well, you know, I was writing uh, um, swords and sorcery books for uh, a Warner imprint called Questar, and um, my agent uh, was talking to uh, Dave Stern, who is the head of the uh, the head editor at the um, Star Trek publishing program at Pocket Books, and he liked my work and he said hey you know uh, he ought to try writing a star trek book so i um i sent him an outline and uh and uh, he got back to me and he said he said mike this is exactly what we're not looking for (laughs) (laughs) he said you wrote this outline based on uh scottish fantasy and you know tied it into scotty and that's great but we're not about fantasy this is science fiction and i said but you know, you read my, my fantasy novels and you like them. He goes, yes, I like your writing. Now I want to see a science fiction plot. So I, uh, I tried again and I, I gave him another, another proposal. And he, uh, and he read it and he said, Mike, this is great, but how does it end? And I said, oh, well, I didn't want to spoil that for you. <laughs> and he said, Mike, I'm, I'm a professional. You can tell me the ending. So I did that, and uh, and he liked it, and that turned into my first Star Trek book. And then I met uh, Bob Greenberger, who was the editor of the uh, DC's uh, Star Trek lines, at a uh, pizza party Christmas <laughs> get-together <laughs> at Pocket Books. And uh, he he confided in me and said that they were gonna they were gonna have a new contract soon and bring on a Star Trek: The Next Generation title. And I said I'd be interested in that. And uh, sure enough, when they got that title, he gave me a one-year contract and said, "Sure, you know, give it a shot." And uh, that turned into, I think, seven years. <laughs> so, you know, our our impetus for bringing you on is because one of our listeners had discovered your Star Trek X Men novel, Planet X, and had no idea that we had done crossovers. And then, I, you know, I know just me personally, I would love to know how you came to be part of this very small, <laughs> like, number of of Marvel and Star Trek crossovers. Uh, well, you know, there were um, there was uh, a Star Trek X-Men crossover that had been done previously, a one shot. And uh, and I guess that worked out well enough. And uh, uh, John Ordover, who was the head of the Star Trek publishing program at the time, was talking to someone at Marvel. And uh, they said, hey, you know, we're doing another another Star Trek X-Men crossover, except this time it's next generation. And John said, well, we should we should do a novel that turns on that. And so he asked me, he said, you know, Mike, he goes, would you want to, would you want to do a Star Trek X-Men crossover? And, you know, when they peeled me off the ceiling, I said, yeah, I would definitely <laughs> like to do that. Because the, you know, the possibilities were just endless. The, you know, the fanboy in me was, was just excited no end. 
And, uh, you know, I thought, okay, oh, so we're going to pair up all these people. We're going to have, we're going to have Worf and uh, Wolverine in the holodeck, right? <laughs> in a Klingon uh, scenario. And, you know, and we can have uh, Geordi LaForge uh, talking to Nightcrawler about the transporter, all this other stuff. So, you know, and then I was thinking, and this was before we knew that, Patrick Stewart was going to play Professor X. I was thinking, you know, we had talked about, gee, he would make a great pr Professor X. And I said, yeah, we can have Captain Picard interacting with Professor X. Two bald guys. That was, you know, <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> so we, we did that. And uh, John came up with the title. And, and it was really the only title it could possibly have had. You know, the title was... Planet X. Probably the, the funniest moment for me in the book was when a transporter operator named B.G. Robinson shows up in the book. She appeared originally in one episode, The Outrageous Akona. Uh, she was played by Terry Hatcher, who, of course, as we know, went on to other roles, uh, including Lois in Lois and Clark. So here's Terry, you know, the B.G. Robinson uh, character. Uh, sees Archangel zipping through the corridors of the Enterprise. And she turns to her friend and says, I can't believe a man can fly. <laughs> <laughs> so there were all kinds of, all kinds of great possibilities for irony, and, and, uh, and, and, and it was a lot of fun. You have, I, I mean, you clearly were just like having a lot of fun being a kid in a candy shop, getting to mash all your toys together to mash metaphors <laughs> entirely. Could you tell us a little bit about how the Jean-Luc Picard storm romance came about? Huh, yeah, uh, there was that. I'm trying to think, you know what, you know, I think um, what it was is we had the X-Men on board and a lot of them, you know, as I said, had kind of natural relationships, you know, Jordy and the Transporter and Nightcrawler and Worf and Wolverine. And one that didn't readily match up was Storm. And I thought, okay, all right, who is she going to match up with? And we couldn't have Professor X on the ship. And I forget, in that, at that point in the X-Men continuity, Professor X was dead or missing or something like that. And so we couldn't have him on board the Enterprise. But I eventually had Picard and... Professor X confront each other in the holodeck. So I kind of got around that. But in the meantime, who was Picard going to uh, interact with? And I said, oh, all right, we'll set up a little romance between him and Storm. <laughs> so it was sort of by default. Natural leaders. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, listen, it's possible that at the time I said, oh, they're both leaders. Let's let's get them, get them together. That's certainly possible. I mean, if I I've written 90 books. So, yeah, it's possible. It's possible. Every now and then, uh, you know, uh, um, a fan will come up to me at a convention and say, I love the way you handled that character in that book. And I say, tell me about it. Because I really don't remember. Alex, you've, uh, you've got a couple of books under your belt. You need to do a couple more to get to 90. But... You being a big Star Trek fan, a big Marvel fan, what do you want to ask uh, Michael about? I mean, how much time do we have? I, I you know, <laughs> we've been we've been emailed, we've been Facebook friends or known each other on social media. But I, you know, I grew up reading a lot of your Next Generation books, so and especially the comics. I have a lot of memories of that lengthy Next Generation run. I guess just to stay on topic a bit. Can you talk a little bit about being an X-Men fan and how you brought that into the crossover? Because we all know you're Star Trek bonafide, so. Well, you know, I was, I was actually a, um, a comic book reader before I read anything else. And one of the, you know, I remember buying X-Men 1 and Avengers 1 on the stands. I had a Fantastic Four 1 in my collection very early on before I had any idea that it was going to be worth more than a dollar. So I was I was a very early adapter of uh, of Marvel comics, and I loved the you know I loved the X Men. I, I loved the original five X Men in particular. In fact, um, I wrote an X Men novel called Shadows of the Past, 
with this great Steranko cover. I actually got to give it to Steranko uh, at a convention uh, last year. That was that was oh, a wow. high point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, we connected, and uh, I gave him a signed copy. He signed. I had a few of them. He signed one for me. It was a, it was a big moment. And uh, crossing over the X Men with Star Trek, that was that was something. The tough part there, you know, we we talked about how great it was and how much fun it was. The tough part was finding the right tone for the book, the right level of um, science fiction, not technology, but the right the right level of um, plausibility or just you know what. Plausibility is probably as good a word as any, because on one hand you have uh, you have uh, Star Trek, which kind of at least makes an attempt to be plausible. I mean, there are things like the transporter, which who knows may 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 never happen, but at least they they make an attempt to be plausible. But um, you know, when you're dealing with superheroes, it's a lot less so, and um, trying to find the right level, uh, we'll call it plausibility was difficult and I finally went more with uh, Star Trek than X-Men. Eventually, you know, part of the part of what went into my decision was uh, the fact that it took place in the Star Trek universe. It took place on the Enterprise, it took place in Star Trek type planets. So eventually uh, eventually I, I leaned more in that direction. Do you have uh, any favorite moments from the crossovers? You know, the Terry Hatcher one is, is hilarious, but just, the, you know, there's got to have to have been times where you're like, I can't believe I'm writing, you know, Warp and Wolverine or just things like that that you just were taken aback in the process. Yeah, well, a big one was uh, was getting Picard together with um, at least the holodeck representation of Professor X. And getting them together, you know, two two very smart guys, was really was really a lot of fun. It was a, it was a big moment for me. And in a, in a in a different way, getting the Watcher and Q together was was also very cool, because they they both have a, a kind of a perspective that transcends ours, and they could make a lot of comments that we could only vaguely understand. It was also cool because um, Planet X was a place where mutant types were, were emerging. It was interesting to decide how our Star Trek characters and our X-Men would, hand, would approach that, that event differently. I don't think there was a single page in that book where I didn't chuckle to myself and say, I can't believe somebody's paying me to do this. <laughs> Where the, I mean, you've gotten to write pretty much every major Star Trek character, and it sounds, and from the crossover, most of the big X-Men characters, were there, in terms of Star Trek, were there, are there characters you feel an affinity to that you just are most comfortable writing or enjoy writing the most? I like Picard, obviously. You know, we've talked about that. Um, I like Kirk, as a matter of fact, you know, for entirely different reasons. You know, when I was a little kid, uh, and Star Trek came on for the first time, there was, there was Captain Kirk. And he was the guy that I always wanted to see on television and hadn't known it. And sometimes, uh, sometimes I refer to that, that first taste of Star Trek in terms that, um, that Fitzgerald used in The Great Gatsby. Uh, Fitzgerald's describing the, the first glimpse that a Dutch sailor gets of, of Long Island and and he calls it an object uh, commensurate with his capacity for wonder and that first episode of Star Trek was was that for me it was an object commensurate with my capacity for wonder and the X-Men the X-Men were familiar to me in a way as well because by then I had started reading prose science fiction and one of the things I had read was a um, a book called Slam by A.E. Van Vogt. Slan was about a group of especially talented outsiders who were ostracized by society. And if you go back to Slan, I'm sure that Stan was aware of it on some level. And Stan, Stan was a great borrower. 
he would take you know bits and pieces from all kinds of places and improve on them and make them uh, uh, stars in you know in the popular culture firmament. So those X Men they were familiar to me when I saw them on the page. They weren't just visually compelling, and they weren't just compelling because they were uh, outsiders and teenagers. I recognized the tradition that they came from. I love that, gentlemen. That was wonderful, Alex. It was fun to watch you get back into your like interviewer <laughs> reporter mode. Uh, we should let you go, let the two of you go, unless Lorraine, you have anything more you want to to chat about. Okay, who would win in a arm wrestling competition, Picard or Xavier? Oh wow! Well, you know, it depends. It's all about the leverage, <laughs> you know, and it depends. Xavier. Uh, uh, in the chair might actually, and, and the fact that he's got to compensate for the loss of his legs might actually have the advantage there. And Picard, you know, Picard's been wounded uh, quite a bit over the years. You know, he, he almost died at the hands of the, Nau- the Nausicans, I think, at one point, right? Alex is nodding, so good, thank yes, you. Yes, yes, yes. Right, <laughs> Validation. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with, with Xavier. All right, either way, Patrick Stewart wins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think it depends on which Picard. If it's early next generation Picard, then Xavier wins. But if it's first contact Picard, Picard's got to Sorry, go. Alex. Uh, you've been vetoed by the man who has much more of an authority on Star Trek <laughs> fiction and Marvel fiction. Thank you, gents. Yeah, thank you, gentlemen. All I have to say is live long and prosper. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Michael, Jan. Uh, that was terrific. I, Lorraine, you know, I feel like I may want to give the next generation a whirl. Hearing you talk about it and Alex and Michael talk about it, I'm like, maybe this is something I can get into. I super loved it. I mean, the the old episodes are great, too. They, they definitely have, they feel like they're in the 60s, which is kind of fun to see some of the 60s-ness of them. But next gen is like, really enjoyable yeah uh going back to uh our our question the tweet that was sent in ron i hope that uh answers some questions and helps uh, illuminate the subject a bunch more and that was a lot of fun i think for both of us to to really explore so thank you for that one ron yeah um but we have one more twit from the internet or twitter from the internet Just read it, please. Okay, great. (laughs) Karis Pollard said, It's a Wednesday. It's bakingly hot, but I managed to brave the scorching streets for new comic book day and pick up Captain America snapshots and Empire Avengers in real physical format. The paper feels so good. They're weighty and solid. And it's good to have new paper comics back. But my This Week in Marvel goes to Empire Avengers. First up, this book is just gorgeous. The art spans from the epic to tiny details of character expressions, and both are done just perfectly. I wouldn't expect less from Pepe Larraz and Marte Gracia, of course, who are awesome. Yeah. Also, shout out to Karis, who is like learning and like practicing comic book coloring and posting about like the pages she's coloring and and stuff like that. And looking at someone like Marte, who is one of the best in the biz. um, It's cool. Great inspiration for everybody. Uh, And those books are cool. Lots of Empire stuff going to be hitting probably all of our Marvel content if it hasn't already. It's Empire season. Get ready for battle. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of battle and getting ready, get ready for Marvel's Iron Man VR with our interview right now with uh, the director of the game, Ryan Payton. Ryan Payton, welcome to This Week in Marvel. How you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah. So what were your your first starter video games? Well, I, I was lucky in the sense that my parents were a little bit strict, but basically on the TV and, and film side of things. But they looked at, at, at video games and comics as as things for for kids. Even though I'm reading Marvel Knights uh, and and playing a lot of uh, you know games that I probably shouldn't have done it back in the day. Uh, you know, playing like Doom and, and Mortal Kombat and stuff like that. Just like you know, a lot of a lot of kids at my age at that time. But for me, uh, you know, storytelling has always been such an important part of of my life and, and for entertainment. And uh, the seminal games for me growing up were were titles like like Final Fantasy VI, for example. Um, that just and, and Metal Gear Solid was another one that 
really opened my eyes to, to the storytelling power of video games and also the fact that they can explore topics that are, are mainly were up until that point mainly reserved for novels and and film. And so that was just an eye-opening experience for me. And ever since I played those games, I knew that I wanted to be a game creator. Lorraine, did you have a Super Nintendo when you were growing up? Oh, yeah, baby. We had the power glove. Oh, yeah. So bad. <laughs> My house was a, like, we had an NES, then we went to Sega Genesis, and I went, like, hard in on Sega. I had the Sega, I still have it, the Sega Genesis with the Sega CD, and they connect together, and then you oh, put yeah. the Sega 32X on top of it. <laughs> oh, my and it, God. It is the worst fire hazard in the world because it's three <laughs> giant, like, it, like, blocks, power blocks. You can't plug that in anywhere. Uh, it's great. But so uh, my point being, you, you mentioned Final Fantasy VI. It's like I never played that growing up because I didn't have a Super Nintendo when I was a kid. So I like I missed a whole run of games when I was younger and never got into it. Uh, but everybody talks about Final Fantasy VI and like Chrono Cross and, and like a whole bunch of games that just like were so important and seminal. So you, you're playing these games. Was it storytelling as a whole that you really latched onto or video games that sort of like directed your like career path? Well, the thing that I, I don't think I really understood it when I was younger. Um, but now I understand a lot better now is that it wasn't just that these video games that I was really into were a vehicle to communicate story is that the one of the reasons why they were so effective and, and really touched me were that it was, was that it was, they were expertly crafted as a, as a, as a melding of storytelling with interactivity and playing through these moments with you controlling these characters and experiencing everything from like the music to the mechanics to the to the art and everything that all coming together was a was just this 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 mind-opening experience for me that i thought i know i know what i want to do now i don't know how these guys are doing it but i want to learn how to do it i want to do it myself and you did (laughs) Well, uh, if you ask my team, uh, I don't know what I'm doing, and they're probably right. Uh, I've, I've, I've faked it till I made it this, this whole time. I went to school uh, because I was told early on that if I wanted to make video games, I needed to learn how to program. So I went to, I went to college, went to a computer science track, and, and I was on the verge of, of failing out of school uh, in my sophomore year because my grades were so bad, and I really struggled with programming. And I remember calling my dad, and I had like tears in my eyes, and I told him, I don't know if I'm going to be able to achieve my dream of working on games because I'm so bad at math and programming. I just, my brain doesn't work that way. My dad said, look, everybody's different. Everybody has strengths and weaknesses. And you're right. Your strength is not in science and math, but you're good with language. Your Japanese and your Chinese uh, language grades are, are, are through the roof. And you're, for whatever reason, you're really good in the business side too. Why don't you pursue a track like that? And maybe the games thing will work out some, t- some way down the line. And to save you the long story, I made, a, I made my way into a game studio by leveraging those skills as well as my writing. And, uh, and I was, again, able to fake it till I made it to the point where now I'm, I'm directing uh, this, this game I'm sure we're going to talk about. And I feel really, really blessed that, uh, that it wasn't just one path um, to achieving uh, this dream that I had since I was a kid. Your dad sounds like a smart cookie. Uh, depends on the subject. <laughs> <laughs> but as he said, everyone has strengths and weaknesses. <laughs> so, and that led you to camouflage. What is camouflage exactly? Besides a great way to blend in. <laughs> well, camouflage is an independent game studio that I started close to nine years ago now. Uh, after I left Microsoft, um, having worked on the Halo series, uh, I wanted to go out on my own and, and spend all the money I'd saved up liquidate my 401k, sell all my stock, and start a video game studio uh, to be one of the next greatest independent game studios in the world. It was a very ambitious plan that I had out. Um, But we started with more of an indie title, a game called uh, Republic, which we're very, very proud of. It's an episodic game. It's released on, I don't know, like 87 platforms by this point. Um, (laughs) But uh, like I said, we're very proud of it, but it was a stepping stone to where we eventually wanted to get to. And uh, what Camouflage is all about is being a a great place to work, here in the Seattle area for about 50, 60 folks that I have the pleasure to be working with. And we're all about making high quality, meaningful games for as many people as possible. So nine years ago, you, you build the, you start putting together this team, this, this company. At what point does VR come into the picture for you guys? Because, you know, Marvel's Iron Man VR is a VR game for, for PlayStation <laughs> VR, uh, which is, 
you know, a, a big change for a lot of folks in terms even playing, I'm sure, and for developing. Yeah. So as I mentioned with our first title, Republic, it started off as a mobile title, uh, became PC, it's PlayStation 4, and it's done on a lot of platforms since then. Um, but one of the things we were really interested in, especially when the technology was starting to come online, like the Oculus Rift, was we were interested in VR. And so we were actually really lucky to be able to partner with Oculus to bring Republic to to their VR headset, um, which gave us a taste of VR development. And one of the things we realized as a team is that we love VR. We find it incredibly challenging, but incredibly rewarding because it puts it's, it's such an immersive technology and allows us to really leverage our, think our, our strengths in terms of storytelling, um, but also a lot of the technical challenges that are required to, to realize a, a VR game. And so once we had finished Republic, we had another project that wasn't really working out very well. And I was approached by the head of Marvel Games, Jay Ung, um, at E3 in the lobby of the JW Marriott uh, Hotel. And one of my best friends from my previous career, Brian Intahar, who ended up becoming the director of the Spider-Man game for PlayStation 4, uh, introduced me to Jay. And Jay clearly was like at that moment thinking about finding a good developer to partner with on a future VR game. And he asked me, does he think that Camouflage would be interested in, in, in partnering with Marvel on, a, on a, an ambitious VR game that doesn't feel like a demo, that's not experimental, that's robust, and it stars a big Marvel superhero. And that's where everything started. You mentioned that your team was really attracted to the sort of interesting challenges and techniques used in VR. What are some of the major differences between working on a, a regular console game versus a VR game? Sure. You know, there's one of the interesting challenges of developing in VR is the fact that it's such a new medium that developers are still learning the fundamentals of. Uh, one thing I like to talk about is that I believe that traditional game development, games that are like flat screen, PC, PlayStation 4 games, what have you, that there are decades and decades of, of knowledge and of expertise and GDC talks in all sorts of materials that you can base and, and tools too, development tools that you can base your game on. So you're not starting from scratch. And I, and I like to talk about how the traditional game development manual, if you will, is probably as thick as like an old phone book that we had maybe a few, you know, a decade or two ago, right? However, VR is so new that I think that the rule book is like as thin as like a passport. And like a passport, it might tell you, like show you some destinations you could go to, but it doesn't even tell you how to get there. This book is so thin. We are continually throughout development asking ourselves, how do you do this really simple thing in VR? We can look at other games, but there's not that many games out there still. We can look at some GDC talks, but it's still so wild west that some of the most simple things that you could do very quickly in a more of a traditional game is just not that easy in VR. And so for some developers, it's not for them. It, it takes a long time. It takes a lot of iteration. But there's a strange thing about me and my colleagues at, at Camouflage that we love difficult challenges and we really rise to the occasion and we just we just love it. And so it's this has been a perfect project for us in many ways. And how cool you get to kind of write the the new rule book. Yeah, we love to do that. And we love to share. We love to share what we've learned uh, because we don't want developers to start back where we were a few years ago. <laughs> You mentioned a little bit about sort of the journey and, and working with Marvel and PlayStation, which I'm sure are amazing collaborators. And I, you know, I know it's this is so important and special because I know how hard the Marvel Games team works to make sure what we're doing, what we're putting out is special and it, it feels like Marvel. What's the process like? What's that journey been like for you? all hmm. Well, Ryan, it's definitely been a journey, you know, and I emphasize that word because we are, you know, to, to lean into that into the hero's journey, if you will, is that we are a very different company and we're very different people than we were three years ago when we started collaborating with, with our friends at Marvel Games. At the beginning of our journey, we were fiercely independent, know-it-all brats who thought that they could make an, an Iron Man video game with a little bit of guidance from Marvel. And it's not that we didn't like working with Bill and Tim and Eric and, and that, that incredible crew that they have there. They're, they're amazing and they've become like really, really close friends of mine. Um, but it took a long time for us to understand just the, the special nuance of what makes a Marvel game a Marvel game. And it's not just great action. And it's not just character-driven drama. But it's those coming together and then allowing players to feel like they are these characters and to feel like a superhero. And I'll give you one example of that. Is that 
early on, we were really lucky to land on the flight mechanics of Marvel's Iron Man VR and have it be great even within the first week or so. And it's been great since we've just been continuing to iterate on it. So we had confidence in there. Then we moved on to the shooting mechanics for how you how you how you shoot your repulsors as Iron Man. That was great too. Um, and then we started to write this really cool story with Tony Stark, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But we've started putting it all together, and something about the game felt like it was an action game, but it didn't feel like a superhero game. And that's when our friends at Marvel Games, like and, and very delicately so, kind of put their arm around me and said, "This is a great action game, but it's not a great superhero game." And that's when we started to sprinkle in a lot of moments that lean into the strengths of VR to allow players to physically feel like they're extinguishing the fire off of like a jet or that they are using their superhero strength to help people and to really lean into what makes it special about what, what makes uh, Marvel special. And as one, once we did that, then we started to like understand that, yeah, we don't know it all, that, we, that, that it needs to be a great partnership. And now... Now, when I look at what how the how the relationship with us in Marvel Games is, it's a very symbiotic relationship. I kind of I kind of uh, use an example of how sometimes Tony talks about like fusing with his 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 armor. I feel like us and Marvel are like kind of coming have come together as one, uh, where we're we're much very much more on the same page than than we were a few years back. You know, getting to just get our first glimpses at the game, it looks phenomenal, and I'm so curious. What was sort of your inspiration behind finding the story of the game? Because story is so important in the Marvel mm. universe. Well, a, a lot of thanks goes to to Bill Roseman over at Marvel Games. Um, you know, speaking of somebody who puts your arm around him uh, around you and, and and helps you out, he sat down with myself and the lead writer of the game, Brendan Murphy, and really helped us understand what makes Iron Man and Tony Stark so special. I mean, I knew I knew Iron Man growing up, but I didn't really know the history behind this character and how on paper and even like Stan Lee intentionally made him somewhat antithetical to what a, a, a typical superhero would be. He's he's really on paper, very difficult to relate to. He's a billionaire. I'm not a billionaire. Uh, he's an inventor. I suck at science. You know, he's pretty cocky. Uh, I'm I'm actually a little more of like on the self-defeatist side of things, but still he's very you can connect with him because he's his own worst enemy. And that is what Bill pushed us towards. He said, if you're going to tell a great original story for Marvel's Iron Man VR, lean into the fact that Tony is his own worst enemy. And from there, Brendan and I went off. And to go back to this, this, to this topic that, that you two were talking about, about the, the power and the magic of video game storytelling, we tried really hard to combine the aspect of Tony being his own worst enemy with the game mechanics. And the way that we came up with the story is making sure that players are fighting against a creation of from Tony's past. And that's what kind of we that's how we start off the story basically. Let's get into the gameplay a little bit like like you mentioned um and particularly because you know, this is a sort of Marvel podcast where we talk to fans of all kinds. You know, some of them read every new comic that comes out every Wednesday. Some people love the movies and love to hear us talk about, you know, that, but don't know the other sides and vice versa. We have, you know, video game fans, but some who may not have their own PlayStation VR. But like, can you give a little sense of how the gameplay works, what that's like and what fans will be able to do if they've not checked it out yet? Sure. So for your listeners, I'll give them the same pitch that I gave Marvel games three years ago or so, some change, uh, is that Marvel's Iron Man VR is a, is a game built exclusively for VR that allows players to have the ultimate Iron Man experience that combines the great things about Iron Man and Tony Stark with the great things about VR. It is awesome to be in the PlayStation VR headset and to be in that three-dimensional HUD that you've seen in the films and in the comics. It is awesome to be able to have the PlayStation Move controllers, um, which act as your thrusters, and to have these repulsor blasts coming out of your palms, just like Iron Man, and flying around wherever you want to fly at top speeds. And it's awesome to have, again, those PlayStation Move controllers paired with the repulsors of Iron Man to shoot those repulsor blasts out of his out of his palms, and then pull them down to have these auxiliary weapons coming out of your gauntlets in in VR. It looks amazing, and then and then finally to have the physicality of being Iron Man. Like rocket punching and ground pounding to the ground is also tied specifically to those motion controllers from the PlayStation VR. So every step of the way, we paired 
these really unique and iconic things about Iron Man with the unique and iconic things about VR. And that's why it was like this perfect pairing. And so for, for players who pick up Marvel's Iron Man VR when it comes out on July 3rd, what they're going to find is it's not just an Iron Man action simulator. It's a deep story where you play as Tony Stark fighting against those past demons in a, in a, in a campaign that's roughly about eight to 10 hours, but there's a lot more c- content beyond the main campaign as well, which is fun. I think it's so cool too, from, you know, getting to see some of the gameplay, what you as Tony are kind of soaring over, what are some of the settings mm. uh, that he gets to go into? Yeah, that I have to say, if you were to ask me what the top three most, most difficult things that we had to overcome as, a, as developers in this game, I would say this, that is building environments that look awesome, that are classic <laughs> Marvel spaces <laughs> that are big enough to contain you because you're flying at 250 miles an hour <laughs> and these environments are massive and i have i have bad flashbacks already and i haven't finished finished developing this game about our poor art team going how are we going to art up these massive spaces like iron man's too fast um but they've done a great job and and, and, have, and have crafted uh some incredible incredibly looking environments and huge environments such as the malibu landscape outside of tony's malibu uh, mansion we have a shield helicarrier. This is a massive helicarrier that has been designed uh, with us and along with uh, Tim Sang over at, at Marvel Games, where players can fly around these, this big, iconic shield helicarrier, but also fly through it too, which is, which is really cool. Uh, and then we also have an environment that was in, inspired by our initial prototype of the game because we thought, we asked ourselves, what would be the most fun environment to just fly through? And we all said, like a downtown, highly dense environment where you're weaving in and out of, of buildings, avoiding enemy fire. So one of our, our, our hero environments is, is, uh, is the Pudong district in, in, in downtown Shanghai. Uh, and that's another one of those, those, those environments that, we're, that we're, we're really proud of. But there's a number of ones we haven't even talked about because uh, we want players, obviously, to be surprised and delighted when they play it in the full campaign. I'm excited. Eight to 10 hours plus extra content. That's a lot of fun. Uh, I will say to anybody who's new to VR, don't try to do the whole game in one sitting. That's oh, not, uh, Ryan, not I love you. <laughs> That's yes. like, as someone who has, I have an Oculus Quest, I have a PlayStation VR, know your limits, take a break, have some water. Rest your arms. Rest your arms, rest your body, <laughs> and make plenty of room around yourself, please. I'm curious, since you're, you know, giving us some, some tips and tricks for getting the game inside our brains, do you have any sort of special tips or tricks when we start playing the game in earnest? like maybe some weapons that you like to particularly use when you're equipping your armor? Mm-hmm, absolutely. So we, I guess I'll, I'll bring up two things real quick. One is that we crafted the opening of the game, uh, which by the way, if, you're, if your audience is curious, you can actually download it for free on the PlayStation Store. There's a, there's a demo. It's a super robust demo. It'll, it, it could, to go through all the content, it's like over an hour of like free content just to get, your, just to get a taste of the game. Uh, in, in the demo and also in the full game, we just let you fly around Malibu and get used to flying, and uh, it's a, it's just an incredible, incredible fl- thrill. But it's just like that that first Iron Man movie. It takes a while to get used to it, right? If you remember Tony and him, his initial struggles uh, with, with 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 flight, and so that's that's pretty common for players. And I think yeah, just taking your time with it is really important. The other thing I'd love to, to kind of bring up is that I think that the rocket punch, um, this melee attack where you hold down the the, the grip button and then you you physically thrust your hands forward with the PlayStation Move controllers is an incredibly powerful tactic. And so I just love to fly up to an enemy, one, two, three combo punch, and then burst off and then finish them off with some repulsor blasts. It's this this loop that the team has created that is just so satisfying that you just want to do it again and again. So you can actually change and tweak your armors and your abilities as you go through the game? Yes, sir. So when we were starting to develop Marvel's Iron Man VR, we asked ourselves, okay, what would make for the ultimate Iron Man experience? And so, okay, yeah, you're first person, you can see your arms and, and you can see your whole, all your armor in, in VR. Okay, great. You get to get yelled at by Nick Fury. Okay, yep, we got that too. Um, but we also have to make sure that players can go into that iconic garage uh, and to play as Tony, tinkering with his with his armor and just kind of get to live the life as, as Tony Stark. So in between most campaign missions, we bring you back to Tony's iconic Malibu garage. And that's where you can spend research points to upgrade your armor, uh, unlock uh, new weapons, and just kind of tinker it and make it make it your own 
to the point actually that we have different loadouts so players can create different loadouts of this impulse armor so they can pick and choose uh, depending on what they, they want to do for the next mission. Uh, that's super cool. I, I, I imagine fans are going to kind of go wild for that and, and have a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. It. It's going to be cool. You know, and it also solves a problem, Ryan, that we had early on, which was, okay, if you're playing as Iron Man in VR, how do you see Iron Man? Because you also want to see the armor, right? And so having that, the impulse armor, this, uh, this iconic armor that we built specifically for this game, having that in third person where you can see it, you can kind of lean into it and see all the detail that the team uh, put into it, uh, I think was like one of the one of the coolest things that we came up with. I know we don't want to give too much away, but aside from Iron Man, what else can Marvel fans expect, or who else can Marvel fans expect to see in the game? Yeah, so we we wanted to make sure that that because we know that fans are going to want to see obviously Tony Stark, but see these this cast of characters that make their way into a lot of uh, Iron Man stories. So obviously, having Pepper Potts be a great companion to to Tony was was high on our list, and we're really thankful that we were able to fully realize her in VR. Um, same with Tony's uh, AI assistant, Friday. Friday is a is a really key character in this game, and voiced by Layla Birch, who I thought this is an incredible job uh, as Friday. We also have a number of other characters that are some well known, like Ghost, um, who's our main villain, but also some other characters that we have announced yet that are a little more um, obscure. But we had just a great time partnering with Bill uh, over at Marvel to try to figure out how we can make these characters delight hardcore fans of Iron Man, but also fit within the themes and what we want to tell with the story of the game. I, I, I don't want you to answer. I don't want you to even react. But my hope is that Unicorn shows up in this game because Unicorn is one of the most <laughs> oh ridiculous gosh. Iron Man villains. And I love Unicorn so much. His name is Unicorn, and he shoots a beam out of his forehead. Let's best. just say that if you love ridiculous Iron Man characters, I think we've got you covered, Ryan. Ha-ha! <laughs> you know, I think Ghost is such a cool villain choice for this game, because literally a hard one to pin down. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the unique challenges of Ghost? Well, throughout development, there was a lot of things that are really hard to pin down. It's a, it's a collaborative... Uh, experience, as you mentioned. But one of the things that came together really quickly was the decision of, of having Ghost be our main villain. And in that conversation went a little bit like this, which was, okay, we know that Tony's his own worst enemy. We know that Tony is now Iron Man, and it's not an origin story. So we're about five years into his career as Iron Man. But we need him to fight back against something that he did in his past when he was an arms dealer. And so what we have is we had to make a villain, or not to make a villain, but we had to find a villain um, in the lore that would resurrect Tony's old machines and use them against him. Maybe hack them and kind of haunt Tony like a, like a ghost from his past. And <laughs> myself and Brendan literally brought this up in front of Bill uh, and Danny and a, and a number of other uh, great folks over at Marvel Games. And it sounds like I'm making this up, but it's a true story. It's like a TV sitcom. They all looked at each other. And they all at the same time said ghost. Uh, and, and that's that's where we had we, we knew our main villain was and we went off to the races. Yeah. Um, so the the demo's out now. If any of our listeners have PlayStation VR, I'm sure they've already checked it out. If they haven't, and they're gonna go pick up PlayStation VR after listening to this, which I think they should, uh, Ryan, do you have any suggestions for other titles that are on PlayStation VR? I know I have a couple I always recommend to people, but I would love to hear from you, who's you know, like developing and seeing, and you're you're in that community. You know, what what are games on PSVR that you love? Oh yeah, I mean, you're gonna have to probably cut my mic because I'm just gonna talk for about the next. 45 minutes on my favorite PlayStation <laughs> VR games, but I'll keep it short, I promise. Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a hardcore PlayStation VR user. For my money, there's nothing better than Resident Evil 7. It's such a terrifying game. The fact that I played that game in VR with noise-canceling headphones on, in the dark, all the way from start to finish, uh, made it so I'm not afraid of anything else in the world ever. <laughs> Thank you, Capcom. But I also love games like, like Tetris Effect, uh, Res Infinite, Firewall Zero Hour is a really fun kind of Rainbow Six inspired uh, VR only multiplayer game that utilizes the the PlayStation aim controller. It's wonderful. And there's dozens and dozens of other great PlayStation VR titles out there. So it's definitely in the mature level of like the life cycle of that product, the PlayStation VR. So if you do pick up PlayStation VR and have an opportunity to play Marvel's Iron Man VR, where we feel we'd be really, really lucky and appreciative of that. But ob obviously, please check out the rest of the, the catalog. There's a lot of 
great, great titles um, that are available for PlayStation VR. All those are really great. Those are, it's, you're in such great company at this point, like you mentioned. It's at this point in the cycle of the system, it's like, what a boon to be there. There's so many great games. Well, I'll tell you what, when we, to rewind back to when we were pitching Jay and the team over at Marvel Games about this, about Marvel's Iron Man VR, uh, one of the things I promised was that it wasn't going to feel experimental and that we were going to be standing on the shoulders of giants of all the previous VR developers that figured out a lot of this stuff. We're going to learn from them and then we're going to try to pave our own path as well because there's so much unique stuff that we have to do. But I feel really, really lucky that we are releasing at, at this stage um, in the PlayStation VR's life cycle because we can benefit from all these other great titles that have come before us because we've learned so much from them. And we really hope that when players play this game, they feel like it's the next wave of development in terms of, wow, they've solved a lot of these other things. This feels like it's the next evolution of VR content. And that's that's one of the things we really want to do with the development of this game. And I want to encourage any noobs out there to go get that bundle and start experiencing the VR experience in full life. Because also, I think one of the things that I think is really cool about VR is you don't ever have to move two joysticks. <laughs> you never have to move your head <laughs> because you have a head. Uh, so it might open up a whole new world to people that are maybe not, uh, you know, people who want to always have to play POV style. It's, it's, it's funny you mention that because one of the things we found with, with people who play, play our game is that oftentimes those who aren't like the super hardcore do really well with it because the, because the movements that are required to play VR are so natural. We have this rocket punch mechanic that I talked about, right? Where you have the PlayStation Move controller and you physically, you hold it and you physically punch forward. And non-hardcore players get that a lot more quicker, quick, quickly than the hardcore players. The hardcore players, what button do I have to press? <laughs> like, you don't have to press a button. You, like, you physically punch. Like, no, like, what do you mean like physically? I'm like, no, like use your body and physically punch. <laughs> and this is one of the great things about VR, you know? Yeah. It's the Very best. Cool. Ryan, congratulations to you, the team at Camouflage, to Marvel Games, and to the team at PlayStation on launching Marvel's Iron Man VR. What a what a great journey, as you mentioned, and it's very exciting to finally now to see fans get their hands on it. Yeah, I'm I'm thrilled. Uh, thank you for having me on your show. Thank you for your audience for giving me the the time out of the day to listen to uh, you know our journey and creating this game. And I hope that for all that 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 play Marvel's Iron Man VR that you absolutely love it. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. This episode of This Week in Marvel was produced by Percy of Berlin, Zachary Goldberg, Lorraine Sink, and Ryan Panagos. Our audio development manager is Brad Barton. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And special thanks to setting your phasers to stun. They are stunning! <laughs> that, was, that one was so pure. I <laughs> I'm Ryan. I'm Lorraine. And this is Marvel. Your universe. Easy peasy. Hey, Mom. Say hello to Alex and Lorraine. Hi. 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 <laughs> Hi, sweetie pies. How are you? <laughs> good, good. I love seeing pictures of uh, your cute granddaughter. Oh, my God. She's the most amazing, magnificent creature God ever created. <laughs> I can't I can track, Can't really say that because I have two of my own, but she's... I know you do. But for me, other than her father, who is the light and the sunshine when the moon comes up and the stars come up, I mean, I'll get carried away. You know I love yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to let you guys work. I'm going to go back outside to the baby. Okay. It's Bye. great to see Bye. you. Bye. Great to see Bye. you. Bye, sweethearts. Oh, my gosh. She's so cute. <laughs>